This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by somebody who's got one of the most interesting jobs in healthcare. We're joined today by Kristen Morris. Kristen is the Senior Vice President, Chief Government Relationships Officer at Atrium Health. Atrium Health is a magnificent system that's grown tremendously under the leadership of Gene Woods the last uh, several years. Thrilled to visit with Kristen today. Kristen, can you take a moment, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your role and about Atrium Health, then we'll talk about what are the big issues you're watching this coming year, um, some of the priorities, and, and a lot more. Kristen? Thank you, and I hope your new year is off to a great start. Um, so I have been with Atrium Health um, almost two years. Um, I started in onboarding at the beginning of the pandemic, so it's been an unusual experience. But talk about hitting the ground running. Um, there was certainly a lot to engage in uh, in the, it's this whole time I've been here. It's been extraordinary. Um, prior to that, I was with the Cleveland Clinic, and I ran government and community relations for them. And prior to that, I was in Washington, D.C. for 30 years, where I um, ran the lobby shop for the American Hospital Association for about eight years and uh, worked for the pharma industry and ran some Washington offices. So Atrium Health, as you noted, is an extraordinary enterprise. Um, recently, I uh, had a strategic combination with Wake Forest Baptist Health, and we're going to be opening up a second medical school. Lots and lots of really cool local, state, federal work to be done um, as a result of that. We have about $12.1 billion in operating income, uh, about 71,000 uh, teammates, about 40 hospitals. And um, another fun fact is we deliver enough babies to make um, three new third grades every single day. So we, we are you know, pretty much a soup to nuts organization. It, 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 truly amazing. Talk about this, opening up new medical schools. How do we get the government funding? One of, one of the biggest problems in healthcare is, quite frankly, not enough doctors, specialists, primary care physicians, not enough nurses, need more medical schools very badly. But then we also need government to fund residency programs. How do we get the government to take a, you know, it's not a sexy issue, it's not a political issue, it's not a fun issue, but it's so much more important than so many other issues, but the government gives it so little attention. How do we get funding for residencies? How do we how do we deal with those issues that seem so fundamental towards growing our healthcare provider population? Well, you just hit one of my top four issues to watch for this year um, because workforce is absolutely in the front line of almost everybody's minds. I think in the early days of the pandemic, we we celebrated our healthcare heroes, and now it's just it's just been extraordinary, the, the, the true heroism of these individuals and how hard these jobs are. And, you know, we're, we're burning out and losing some of our talent that we just desperately need to actually not only lose, but we need more talent to come in as we have an aging um, society, et cetera. So um, this is a crisis, you know, to, to be sure. So having a new medical school is exactly the right time and the right place to, um, to, to have this discussion and doing it in a way that has an eye toward population health and the underserved is really the focus because again, that's, that's really where our gaps are. But I don't wanna lose sight of um, nursing and allied health care too. So the government has a role in both and both of them have been funding that through um, a longstanding you know, understanding that there is that need to inspire the workforce of tomorrow through a Medicare pass-through payment of some sort, whether it be graduate medical education, indirect medical education, nursing and allied health, um, Medi Medicare pass-throughs, but it's a really unsexy issue. 
And so I think our challenge as advocates um, uh, is to, to do everything we can to reinforce the need to put this on the front burner. And hopefully the Build Back Better Act, which includes an additional 4,000 GME slots in it, will make it over the line in some fashion because that's, that's, that's what's hot and heavy right now. But, but that's a fascinating perspective because, you know, I would consider myself a centrist. I had no idea that Build Back Better included 4,000 residency spots or graduate medical education spots. In, in a million years, I would have known that. How do we make this a, 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 it, 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 it's such a, it's such an important issue. It seems like we've got such a clear depth of a huge problem, but but not discussed enough in D.C. And, and I would not have known that. Thank you for sharing that, Kristen. Talk to us about what are the other big issues that you're following, um, and and I hate to lose the sight of the CME issue because I think it's so critical because we get all we want on coverage, which is a very sexy issue in D.C. But if we don't have access to more doctors and nurses, it doesn't really matter, does it? But let me let you let me give you the floor back to you, Kristen. Well, um, the first one on my list was going to be the Medicaid coverage gap or coverage gap in general. Um, Atrium Health operates in, in all the states that are not covered, <laughs> so um, that don't have Medicaid coverage um, for the 100 to 138 percent of poverty um, gap that that was left under the Affordable Care Act decision of the Supreme Court you know, about a decade ago. So um, I have that really, really in the forefront of my mind, and there's two ways to do it. The state can do it, or the federal government can do it. But frankly, at this point, I don't care who does it, we just need it to be done. Because we have seen across the country that once you do have that coverage for that population, it's, it's extraordinary how much more efficient it is on, on uh, the whole safety net environment of that state. Ohio has some great statistics that shows that um, not only did the, um, the growth of Medicaid occur once they expanded coverage, but the rate of growth slowed by, more, by 8%. I mean, it was just an extraordinary change. And um, two thirds of the, the Medicaid coverage gap uh, population was able to um, get, off the cover, uh, get off the Medicaid rolls because they were able to now have access to the care that they needed to become functional employees. So this is this is a real workfare issue, um, and it's something that's hard to imagine why it's taken so long for us to come over the line. So that's that's right there at the top of my list. It, it take a moment there. I mean, we've gone from since 2010, since Affordable Care Act was passed, we've moved from about 20 percent to about 10 percent of the population doesn't have coverage. Now it's down to eight to nine percent. But this Medicaid gap is one of the key remaining stumbling blocks, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's easy to fix. It, 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 and we should fix it, shouldn't we? Because quite frankly, to go back to the first issue, which is an issue that's near and dear to my heart, I talk about all the time, this, this need for more providers. We need to fix coverage for people to move their attention to fixing access, which is the supply of doctors and nurses, don't we? I mean, partly it seems like we got to get this fixed to move on to the, well, the, the next issue, which you can't have you could have coverage, but you still won't have access unless we have enough doctors and nurses. That's correct. I mean, this is this is what you know where the complexity of the system comes into play because it is so tightly integrated. So when you did ask me what are the top things on your mind, there is this domino effect, and you don't know exactly which one, which is the first domino to fall. But um, 
you know, I think from a patient population perspective, we can reorganize coverage all day long, you know, in the way in which we contractually provide coverage. But if the person doesn't have confidence that they can take care of their disease before it, you know, exacerbates, you're kind of missing the whole point of healthcare to begin with. So, you know, to some degree, um, I really feel that while the caregiver part is really, really critical, it's almost as if you don't have a predictable way to responsibly care for people. Um, that seems to be on the ground level of what we need to accomplish first. And that's, that's really what coverage is all about, is the individual having the confidence that they can actually go and get the care they need. Um, we provide care for people when they show up in our emergency department. So there is you know, um, inefficient universal access, if you could argue that but it is in the most expensive, unpredictable, uncomfortable way for, and, and, and just absolutely disastrous way to deliver population health. Um, it really should be an individual has confidence that they have coverage. And still 25 to 30 million people without coverage in our country with 330 million. So no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So coverage and the confidence that you've got a healthcare issue, you don't have a healthcare issue, but you can get healthcare and then then access, making sure there's a place to get it. And when your point is, people can still get it at ERs, but it couldn't be any more inefficient, more challenging, more complex. But, you know, particularly you add a, an infectious disease or a virus going around, you couldn't ask for a worse place to just show up without coverage to get care. So thank exactly. you. So we've, we've, talk, we've talked some about coverage, adding medical schools. We've talked some about access. What other issues are you following closely, Kristen? Well, um, I think the next domino somewhere in that lineup is um, telemedicine and virtual care, the way in which we obtain care. I mean, I just think of, I'm a mother, I have six kids, and I got to tell you, the worst thing was for me to try to figure out how do I take care of the eye infection, earache, whatever the small, relatively small issue was, and hold down a full-time job. It was, I, I can, I don't even know how, I don't even know how I did it. I certainly don't know how people who are struggling with, you know, hourly jobs. Uh, can pull that over the line. Virtual care was transformational for me. And it is it is shown and demonstrated to be essential to navigating just the pandemic. We avoided having to open up field hospitals and we were able to, to basically care for a vast number of our patients without um, exposing them to a higher risk environment throughout this whole last two years. We developed hospital at home because of um, telehealth coverage which um, if you're not familiar with it, is um, a really longstanding um, you know, sort of concept that was just not able to get off the ground because of lack of support for it. And now we have Hospital at Home, which has saved Atrium Health about 1,200 inpatient hospital days by taking care of people who are otherwise gonna be admitted into the hospital. We are able to take care of them in their home with the, with the same acuity level of care. It's, it, this is, in my opinion, like the future game changer for the way that we can care for our population in the future. Um, and that's like probably a whole nother podcast, but it, it is essential we get telehealth coverage. And the question for you about hospital at home and telehealth coverage, access, telehealth, hospital at home, hospital at home, how important is it for those 1200 hospitals they saved? that somebody's got some help at home, some either another family member or somehow or another, to be able to do hospital at home well, 
and have support at home. How important is that from a socioeconomic standpoint and the ability to deliver a hospital at home? Is that a barrier if somebody doesn't have you know family help? Yeah, that is a really good question. Um, and in, in reality, we are able to care for patients um, if they are living uh, alone. Um, mostly because the, like, again, this is something that has gone through, J, that is going through JCHO and has a real clear definition of what level of in, um, engagement and presence is required for these patients. Two nursing visits a day, constant telehealth engagement. Um, you know, really there is, there is a way that the, that individuals can be cared for, even if they are alone in their home. Are, are those two nursing visits in-person nursing visits? Yes, they have to be in-person visits, um, you know, and I think that, you know, over time, we're hoping that CMS will be a little bit more flexible under the waivers so that we can adjust the acuity so it doesn't have to be an RN um, and that we can have, you know, again, leverage the coverage of telehealth to make sure that we maximize people's licenses and have that sort of in-presence, but you have to have people physically on-site caring for that patient. Yes. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Kristen, what a pleasure to visit with you. T another issue that you're following closely. It, it, we've gone through three or four so far. I would, um, so we've, we've had uh, coverage gap, um, workforce, telehealth. And this is one where um, I feel like as we've, um, that's become incredibly politicized. But um, I think the way that hospitals themselves are structured is, um, an area where we have to hit a common ground. Um, there is a perception that while the rest of the economy is consolidating and um, we're finding, whether it be the insurance companies, whether we find it, you know, the, the healthcare delivery across the line, except there is this concern about hospitals um, aligning with one another. And as a system, you know, I've experienced in my career this, the importance of having shared resources in order to protect access in rural areas or underserved areas and, you know, basically share a, a what, would, what a system is meant to be. We're not holding companies. I mean, we are systemized and are able to compete and, and exist in a very complex marketplace because of it. And I think um, I have a very large political challenge because I, I'm, I think that the consolidation in general is now um, politically perceived as having as many negatives as there as positives. So um, I think that's, let me, a, you, that's a new, let me new ask challenge. you a question about that. Cause that that's a fascinating discussion point. And fascinating, if, if you went back pre-COVID, the, the last 10, 15 years, one of the ways that health systems succeeded was by being large regionally dominant players where in a neighborhood, it'd be hard for payers or patients to go around them. And, and, and people could take that in a million different ways. The flip side is hospitals and health systems could not invest in technology and people and systems, take any risks and so forth without having enough scale to do so. And, and, and then, so, so you take this last 10 year view of the world before the pandemic uh, and there's all these studies out there. Health system consolidation was very beneficial, or the other studies where health system consolidation raised prices. And, and two very distinct viewpoints, and the truth on all of it is probably somewhere in between. As is always the case. The, this is always the case. This is always the case. The truth on all these things is always somewhere in between. Um, I, I, I'm a believer in that. Um, you know, some things are black and white, but many things are. The, the truth is somewhere in between. The, the the next issue as you go forward now, you get to the pandemic and we realize 
you know, no one saw more patients in New York State than Northwell Health, the biggest health system. That health systems became very clearly too big to fail. We couldn't afford not to have them in the, in the case of a pandemic. And yes, they're higher staffing costs, they're higher real estate costs than all kinds of other providers, but they're so sorely needed. Do you think with the pandemic that there will be less opposition to these consolidated health systems with with us having the, the pandemic right in front of us and, and such clear, I mean, when you look at sort of your region of the country, you know, it was Gene Woods and Atrium that were out doing vaccinations and testing at NASCAR facilities at, you know, just mass vaccination events to try and take care of a mass problem. They just couldn't do it as an individual community hospital. And it's on, and no offense to the individual community hospital, which are so critical to our infrastructure too, but you just can't do this without large players. What's your sense? Is there is there any sort of like mix of thoughts in Washington, D.C. about this and, and for me and I trust people about this, about how needed these big systems are, like almost too big to fail, like the big banking systems? I, 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 I don't want to have this be considered a too big to fail um, dynamic because I don't think that that's the case. Um, you know, I, I, I think to your point, um, in the economy has just like nature, a funny way of balancing itself out. Um, what I think that I want to avoid is the, you know, sort of arbitrary knee jerk, it's all bad, this, you know, kind of um, approach to what a system can bring. Because you brought up beautiful examples of what's essential about a system. And I would also add that it was the systems that were able to navigate through, you know, the shutdown and through shutting down, um, you know, uh, scheduled care, et cetera. And we didn't have to lay off, we kept our community going, we didn't lay off one person. Um, but it was because we had the capabilities to, you know, span that that really, really dry, dry period until we were able to, you know, get up to the other end. Um, those kinds of safety nets are, I think, are what you want to have in such a critical infrastructure in your in your neighborhoods and your towns and your cities. And so I, I really, really am confident that done the right way, hospital systems are the way to go. And I will I will add that the tests will be, and this is how the economy works out. I mean, look at we're getting equity of care quality measures under consideration at CMS. As you begin to understand what good performance is like, and you can spread those good best practices across a larger environment, you avoid some of that, um, you know, I think challenging um, dynamic of what one might consider holding company activities. And you really reinforce what it takes to become a true, you know, enterprise system. And that's, that's where I'd like to have our focus be. And not just a knee jerk that, you know, we don't want, we want to, we want to go back to where there's a community hospital in every corner operating independently. Are you kidding me? I mean, the federal government and the cost that they put on us through EMR, et cetera, it's, it's just, it's, it just is not, it's not possible. And I, I would like to be a partner with the government in identifying how we operate the best way possible. And, and let me ask you a follow-up question to that. When you, when you look at sort of the economic infrastructure out there, Two of the largest companies in the country by revenue are United Optum and CVS Aetna. So two of the, literally, two of the six largest by revenues, not necessarily market cap, but by revenues. Those are two of the largest, two of those big, big payers that are also providers as well. When you talk to people in Washington, D.C. or in state government, and they look at who you're selling into, these, at least in part, these powerful, powerful players, literally two of the six largest com- companies in America, is there any sort of understanding that even if you're a $12 billion health system, 
that may be large by some standards, but it's small compared to some of these huge companies and insurers that play in the ecosystem. Is, is there is there an increased understanding of like even when you talk about Common Spirit as a thirty billion dollar organization, well, that's nothing compared to a three hundred billion dollar organization that United is or that or that you know CVS Aetna is moving towards. Well, I was wondering if you're ready to be hired to help me advocate for this, because that's exactly the environment that we should be, you know, sort of working together around. Um, that's, it's, 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 it's hard for me because on its face, it seems quite obvious that, um, that the, just a knee-jerk reaction is not the way that we have to look at this. We just have to look at how do we make sure that systems are all performing at the best practices level. And, you know, it's, and I, instead, I feel like we waste a lot of time. We waste time and um, and I would say talking points on demonizing something. And I just I don't I don't get it. I you know this is where my blind spot is. I don't get it. Um, I really believe that um, this is a this is a challenge for me as an advocate to make sure that I do my best to bring forward not just the data but earn the confidence of policymakers that you know we really really are in this for the right reason. If we were in it for the money, heck, I'd be working for one of the publicly traded for-profit companies and making a lot more, you know, but that's not where we are. We are a public hospital serving a very large, broad community the best way we can. Kristen, I, I want to thank you for joining us today. You've had a Hall of Fame career at Atrium Health, now leading up government affairs, uh, Cleveland Clinic, the American Hospital Association. You're sort of the Gene Katie of what you do, uh, and you're with the Mac- <laughs> A magnificent, a magnificent, really magnificent Hall of Fame career. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it greatly. And, and our, our hats off to the Atrium Health System, just magnificent. Kristen, well, thank you so much. My pleasure and have a wonderful day.